0: Shield, a long-form discussion podcast about musical topics both past and present. I'm Gabe, and I'm joined as always by Dan. Hello. And Darren. Hello. You know, I like to start each episode by asking you guys if you've listened to anything interesting lately. And I want to jump right in at the top here because Dan's got a little field trip to tell us about uh King Crimson. I think everybody knows just came to streaming. Maybe I shouldn't say too much about it. I think we were kind of considering maybe doing an episode about it sometime in the future. But... It's a major blunder for me. Something that I've just, just something about like their whole aesthetic with like the medieval knights and astrology and shit, like, is so off-putting to me. And they're like really obsessive fans. I don't know, but I'm learning this week that uh, I I was, I was mistaken. I think because I'm really falling under its spell. Did you say you're having kind of a similar experience, Dan?
1: Yeah, I have been. I've been listening for the same reason since it's on streaming. And I we talked about Red on the old podcast, and I think I, I think I shit on it. Um, but luckily, uh, I don't think it's online anymore, so I can yeah. pretend I didn't. Because yeah, I've been I've been enjoying uh, that record and uh, Starless and Bible
2: Black. Um, getting yeah. into it, I'm a, a prog guy now. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Darren? Uh, I've been listening to uh, pretty much Bob Dylan, which is what we're understandable today, right? Yeah. All right. So Dan, how uh, what field
0: trip are you telling us about?
1: Yeah, I saw. Uh, I went to two concerts actually. Uh, I, I saw Earth um at the Wills pub in Orlando which uh mm-hmm. is a like really tiny really tiny place um there really weren't like a ton of people there like a lot of people left after the opening band who yeah. i had never heard of um uh, but, you know, they were great, played a lot of stuff from the, from the new record. Um, you know, Earth, you kind of know what you're getting into, uh, but it was great. Is it great. just,
0: like, guitar and drums live as well? Uh,
1: no, they had a second guitarist, uh, ah, too, okay, who was, okay. like, some young guy uh, that I didn't recognize. But, uh, yeah, uh, in the past when I've seen them, um, they had, like, a keyboardist one time. I, I think they sort of, the you know, Dylan and the uh, drummer um, are sort of the only uh, standard right. members, I guess. But then also, I, um, my wife and I, we took a little mini vacation to Athens, Georgia, and uh, we saw Sleep at the Forty Watt, a very famous club. REM oh. and everybody got their start at, um, and that was great. You know, they're they're uh, That's the second time I've seen them, and they're just like a really good live band. You know, um, they played a bunch of stuff from the newest record, a couple things from a uh, Holy Mountain, um, just you know, loud and uh, doomy it's pretty great uh, yeah there's a lot of drone in your life recently. yeah i know i know i'm seeing boris in a couple of weeks too oh, wow i know no
0: ears left just gotta <laughs> gotta catch sun and it's like the whole genre i know basically. <laughs> <laughs> seen them all all right. Well, uh, let's get into today's topic then. Um, in the past couple of weeks, I'm sure everybody knows Bob Dylan's famed 1975 concert tour. The Rolling Thunder Review has been documented in film by Netflix's Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese by Martin Scorsese, by the way, uh, <laughs> as well as a new 14 disc box set called the Rolling Thunder Review, the 1975 live recordings. Like a lot of people then, we've been completely captivated by this fascinating chapter in Dylan's long, strange career. Early in the documentary, Dylan says he doesn't remember anything about the tour because it happened so long ago he wasn't even born. I really love that. Yeah, I and uh, he admits that he can't get to the core of what it was all about because, quote, it's about nothing. So for today's episode, we're going to dive deep into both the film and the box set to uh, see if we can do a better job of answering that question. What was this Rolling Thunder review all about? First... I want to know everybody's approach to this set film. How would you describe your level of Dylan fandom?
1: And what did you know about this era, the rolling thunder Review in particular going in? Uh, well, my level of Dylan fandom, uh, huge, huge fan. He's without a doubt, my, uh, favorite artist. Um, I know more than I wish I did about, uh, not only him, but the, the rolling <laughs> thunder Review. I've read, I've read
2: countless books, uh, uh-huh. I feel like I know a lot, <laughs> uh you know I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, you know musically uh he's just kind of obvious an obvious pillar, you know alongside uh-huh. like something like the Beatles, you know what I mean um I've always been a fan, uh obviously all of the sixties records pretty much like love all of those. And, uh, you know, Blood on the Tracks, Desire, and I kind of stop pretty much there. I don't really go missing out. all of that. <laughs> seems just like a very dark, dark space to go into. What about you, Gabe? Yeah,
0: you know, and um, there have been several points in my life where Dylan is my favorite artist, and it always seems like just every couple of years I get into a big phase, and I guess like a lot of people, I lean really heavily in the 60s stuff, um, which I think is Obviously, some of the best music ever made. The basement tapes are like in my top five albums, quote unquote, if you want to call it that, uh, of all time. Um, the 70s is a little bit of a mystery to me. It's like I've heard of these things like the Rolling Thunder review, but never really um, explored any of it. And obviously, listen to Blood in the Tracks, Desire. But it feels like every time I get into a Dylan phase, I, I reach like one new album You know, like I I get into like a like really heavy into new morning and I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize this was so good or like, you know, just something like that. And um, so it's weird because his later career, it feels like a mystery to me. I've just like it, you know, dived in in little points. But, um, you know, once this was announced, I was really, really excited to finally learn what it was all about because I knew it was a big deal. But I guess that's all I knew. So on that note. I want to kind of, in a discussion form, get to all of this background info that I think is really relevant to this discussion. Um, Dan, as the resident Dylan expert, can probably speak a lot to this. But from my understanding, it seems like Dylan is kind of going in a commercial and, you know, maybe you're going to try to fight me on this, but uh, (laughs) even an artistic slump in the early 70s, a little bit. Um, And he has this kind of comeback with this tour with the band in 1974 bob dylan and the band right and from what i understand dan it's like a huge stadium
1: kind of thing right yeah it's like giant you know many many thousand people you know arena uh shows because because not mm-hmm. only was dylan you know this is his first uh he's played uh, a couple like really tiny things um since 66 the you know uh the judas tour or whatever uh, uh. He, he played the last um not the last one the concert for Bangladesh with George Harrison he like sh- did the Isle of Wight festival and uh, he like randomly showed up at this one folk festival under a secret name uh so much it's so secret there's literally only one picture that exists of it <laughs> um but th- that's essentially all he did live um from 66 until 74 so you know it was a huge deal they had like lotteries to get the tickets i um i can't remember the i should have looked it up but uh They, like, in the paper, you know, this is obviously before the internet and stuff, they, like, it would have, like, a lottery, like, in the paper, you would write in, and if you got chosen, you could buy tickets, and they had something, like, uh, it was over a million people, like, requested tickets, like, I want to say it's three million or something, it's, like, many, many times over what tickets existed, um for this tour, because because you gotta remember the band had also become a huge band in their own right uh by 74 as well so it was just
2: like totally sold out the entire
1: tour yeah yeah it's like crazy sold out yeah
0: yeah it's funny i have a friend who's like really into fish and they do this lottery thing and it's like he gets people you know he pays people to enter like multiple times you (laughs) know every time they go on tour and it's like sometimes he doesn't like him and nobody he knows wins at all and then sometimes he wins like you know forty tickets, and he has to sell you know, one thing. <laughs> uh, it's crazy, but anyway, so after this like sort of comeback um highly publicized like you said um this kind of like amazing thing happens where nineteen seventy five um and I guess into i guess january nineteen seventy six is like this magnificent return to form. We get Blood on the Tracks early in 75. We get the Rolling Thunder review, which we're going to talk about today uh, in the latter half of 75. Um, of course, it continues on, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, and we get Desire, which is what Dan, it's like recorded before but released after this tour?
1: Yeah, most of it is recorded right before the tour. Uh, Hurricane was re recorded. Uh, like, uh, I think, five days before the tour started because he had to uh, change some of the lyrics so he wouldn't get sued.
0: Yeah, so, you know, it's... uh, This is something I want to keep turning to. This is one of the things that got me, like, really interested in this set because I know it falls right in the middle of this period. Um, You know, Darren, did you have any, like, going into this, any ideas about, you know, based on your own Dylan fandom that you talked about, like, why is 75 this... Is it just a miracle or something that he you know, pulls this off after kind of a slump and then immediately entering another
2: very long slump. Yeah. It's really strange because, you know, I think the majority of my fandom was spent in like the sixties albums. Um, you know, and that, it kind of stops with like, you know, blonde on blonde, obviously I feel, I feel like is, is probably my favorite Dylan record. And then, you know, Nashville skyline was like very different. Although I did get into that. Um, and then I just didn't really know much other than, like, you know, I, I kind of always thought, like, self-portrait was, like, the end, you know, right, like, for right. a long time. <laughs> and then I sort of, I don't know how I came to No Desire, maybe, like, Hurricane, and I heard it, and that's sort of what got me into that. Um, and then I went backwards to Blood on the Tracks. But, like, I, I had kind of lost any idea of, like, what was really going on with Dylan um, between, like, 69 and, like, this this era.
0: Yeah, to me, that's like the biggest mystery that I want to keep touching on today, which is like, what is going on? And I think the Rolling Thunder tour, I mean, in a literal sense, but also in sort of an artistic sense, is right at the center of this whole little renaissance thing that goes on. So to get to the Rolling Thunder review, let's try to describe what it was, you know, what... So, I should mention, by the way, that Darren, uh, by design, did not watch the film, okay, where he's sort of judging on a music-based uh, sense, but Dan and I are pretty well-versed in the um, in the film and the box set, obviously. So, Dan, why don't you start, what, how would you describe to somebody who has no idea what it is, what is the Rolling Thunder review?
1: Yeah, it's basically, I mean, it's a review in the... Uh traditional sense you know it's like a circus he wanted it to be like a circus coming to town um yeah you know him and this uh the band he puts together uh goes by the name guam uh you know it's joan baez roger mcguinn uh mark ronson uh you know all these huge names uh mick
0: ronson i keep making that same mistake myself there's a new pop star called mark ronson apparently but mick ronson yeah 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 correct ronson
1: yeah um yeah, so he he wanted to basically like get them all in in a in a bus or whatever and travel from town to town and like in the towns, you know, if Joni Mitchell lived there, she would join the you know the 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 band for a night or or in her case, you know, join the rest of the tour and you know they were gonna go from town to town and and do that and and they did so it was it it, it was one huge show you know these these the box set um is only the Dylan uh, sets. Right but like the show would be uh, like 4 to 5 hours uh long depending on the night uh and everyone would kind of take their turn in the spotlight you know and then finally Dylan oh. was the the big headliner or whatever you know so uh Bob Newirth would would play a few songs Ginsburg would read some poetry Baez would do a set you know McQuinn would do some songs um and it was just this loose like you know very circus thing in a in very small venues um you know, thousand seaters, fifteen hundred seaters, um compared to this giant, you know, um uh stadium tour the year before. so like they wouldn't even announce where they were going the next day. You know, uh they, they would come into town, hand out flyers to people, and uh, you know, if you got in, you got in. It was this very like loose, uh, freewheeling kind of uh, Ooh, hey, <laughs> hey, nice. hey, uh kind of situation.
0: Yeah. So it seems like basically the polar opposite um, to his tour of the band. Exactly. Um, from what I understand, maybe you know, Dan. He didn't. He wasn't very happy
1: with that 1974 tour. Now, I've. I mean, you know, you can't ever believe what he says. Right. Um, but yeah, from from <laughs> it seems like no, but like from uh, interviews and stuff I read with like Levon Helm's and stuff, like everybody just kind of realized that it was for the money you know the set list for that tour is like kind of just the hits you know it's almost like he's getting into beginning a a nostalgia act almost you know at that point you know it's it's just it it, it reminds me of like today uh yeah i've never gone and saw the rolling stones live but i'm sure you know i could i could probably tell you at least 15 of the 20 songs they'll play uh you know it was kind of getting into that where it was just going to be the hits and I mean before the flood is is the you know for people listening before the flood is the the album of the 74 tour right. um and it's a pretty like you know good picture of of that tour
0: Yeah I, you know I find this very fascinating that um you know it's basically like a total reaction against the 1974 tour um I want to ask, as we continue to sort of describe this thing, Darren, were you, you know, based on, I don't know how much you read up on this week or whatever, but do
2: you get some of this vibe from listening to the music itself? A little bit. You know, honestly, I I found it, I was a little confused. Um, You know, for some reason in my mind, I thought post-60s, especially because, like, Dan, you mentioned, like, this large gap where he stops touring. You know, I was thinking, like, I thought when Dylan went electric, he basically, he I know he was still mixing in some, like, acoustic stuff, yeah, you know, and playing songs like that, but I, I totally did not anticipate um, any part of these live shows to involve him just with a guitar, you know what I mean? Like, I thought he was going to be electrifying all of the songs, you know, and I mean, I know we'll get into, like, some of the different takes that he he does on some of his older songs but um yeah i was like it just seemed really strange um how he would just go up there and you know on one of the shows he does like mr tambourine man and then he does like of course like blowing in the wind like it's just playing a hit and i i didn't you know it's it's not that i hated it i was just very surprised because it just didn't seem like bob dylan would suddenly go back and start playing some of his big you know, protests like songs from the 60s.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually very fascinating because if you think about it, and maybe this isn't 100% accurate, okay, but we're entering a new era in the 70s of rock music because the the 60s musicians who kind of like invent popular music as we think of it now, I mean, you know, you can go back to Elvis and stuff like that, but it seems like something slightly different happened in the 60s with this counterculture music thing. Um they're for the first time kind of entering middle age and you know maybe it like nobody realized that this is what would happen you know you didn't have like a rolling stones to turn to and be like oh yeah eventually we turn into nostalgia acts (laughs) you know it's like basically all these artists are navigating like completely new waters and i think it's incredibly like prescient that dylan in 74 is like it, it seems to me kind of recognizing that and being kind of afraid of it before it had ever happened to anyone. Do you kind of know what I'm saying, Dan?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it is kind of weird because yeah, like he's, he's slightly, you know, older than the Beatles or Rolling Stones or anything. So he's like a little bit ahead uh, in, in that sense of middle age and everything. And yeah, it's almost like he sees that and he's like, Ooh, you know, I I don't want to just be some shitty dad rocker, you know, even though that (laughs) doesn't exist yet. Um, and yeah, and I think he never really goes back to it too. I mean, you know, the the late seven, like 78 tour and and into the 80s are all really bad into the 90s too. Um, but he never <laughs> really goes back to like Play the playing hits. huge sold out stadiums, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I
0: and I do actually want to return to this idea of him playing the hits cuz I do think that's a really interesting choice, but we should Continue sort of describing the scene here. Um, as far as the band, you mentioned some people, but it's it kind of feels like the Desire band. at And then a couple people added, you know, as far as his band. Um, people like a young T-Bone Burnett is here, you know, which kind of brings, I guess, that country, countryfied thing. Um, you know, of course, you've got, obviously, Scarlett Rivera, who's on Desire, of course. But uh, the violin is very prevalent here. Um Most fascinating, though, like you mentioned, Dan, is Mick Ronson, who is most famous at this point for being on um, playing a a lot of records with David Bowie. But most famously, uh, he's in the Spiders from Mars, you know, from the Ziggy Stardust era. And actually, I didn't I didn't know this uh, before this week, but played a lot of guitar on Lou Reed's Transformer, which, of course, Bowie was involved in. Um, That, to me, is a really interesting choice. Uh you know like this glam rocker and maybe you could hear some of that Darren like this sloppy wild electric guitar in
2: this kind of folky like
0: carnival thing?
2: Yeah, I I did hear that and I was kind of thinking to myself that, you know, Dylan was <clears throat> maybe trying to you know, jive with some of the the new rock and roll sounds of the 70s, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, what do you make of that, Dan?
1: I you know, the whole of the I always it's so strange and I, I've read several books on the Rolling Thunder review uh itself and uh it's like nobody really talks about it or like mentions <sighs> right. how weird it is. Um I think it's Because uh, one thing I have read a lot is that he like was really quiet and stayed to himself yeah. a lot and because uh, even in, in the uh in the, the Netflix movie you see him a couple of times, but there's never any like um and there's never anything like focused on him, and I always find it like so strange because, like, one, he's a big deal, especially in '75. Yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. right off the the uh, spiders from Mars and everything. Um, but yeah, it's like sometimes, um, I can't remember exactly what song or lyric, but uh Dylan says something about like thunder, and then Ronson does that like, whir, like <laughs> crazy, like uh, this weird like sliding you know just like real gnarly uh kind of distorted guitar thing and it like that one little moment it's always like oh yeah that's ronson you know um but it's so strange that it's not a bigger deal that uh that he's on that tour i know and watching the movie
0: he sticks out just like he does, like on the record, because he just
1: looks—he's uh, like, got a mullet, and he's yeah. like he looks so glammy. Everyone else like looks like a country star. I know, <laughs> and you know, th- so basically, I started to sort of gravitate toward
0: like one of these grand overarching theories that I'm like prone to doing, where you know, basically, how do I start here? Punk mm-hmm. is has not yet emerged, okay, but it's about to, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like in the air. Um, stuff like glam is sort of a, it's like the early stage of punk. And, um, you know, quite amazingly in the documentary, I think it's like one of the coolest parts, in fact, is uh, Patty Smith features quite heavily early on. And she performs a song at like one of these impromptu kind of jam hangout things. And she's shown like sort of talking poetry at Bob Dylan, who like seems like sort of amused by this whole thing. But at first I was kind of thinking, you know, it's like, Okay, this is like, uh, you know, it's sort of showing somebody who Bob Dylan has had a major influence on. Right. Um, Which is obvious. And yet there's also this element of like she's kind of like just her presence is kind of inspiring him to kind of step up his game a little bit. And maybe not just her, but just the stuff that's going on. And I started to think, develop this theory like punk is kind of the antidote to getting stale, you know. In fact, punk emerges to sort of destroy classic rock once it's really gone stale, you know. And it's almost like before punk has even started or it's just starting with people like Patti Smith um whose Horses I think came out in 75 this, you know, mm-hmm. around the same time. Um it's like Dylan is sort of again in a prescient way sensing that like something like punk or, you know, punk before punk even exists you know, would be the antidote to my problems with this arena rock, this
1: nostalgia act that I'm, you know, slipping into. Do you kind of see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think he is, like, as an artist, I think he's, like, very aware of uh, those kind of things. Um, You know, he's always, like, so uh, reclusive and, you know, doesn't do a lot of interviews. So, you know, there's not a lot of, like, him talking about uh, contemporary artists at the time. But I think it's, like, fairly obvious, you know. He is like friends with Patty Smith by that point and yeah. I think they still are cuz when he got the uh that Nobel thing she like um sang one of his songs for it and stuff you know I, like I think they're you know at least friendly uh, you know to to know somebody like Patty Smith in 75 uh, you know I think you yeah, I think you would have had to have been like looking for it, you know. You, yeah, you, it's kind of especially at his age, you know. It's not like he just and you know he's not just hanging out at CBGBs on a on a Tuesday, you know. Like, right? I I think he like somebody like him would have had to have like, seeked that kind of thing out. But th- you know, this is like so. This is like my kind of theory I'm developing is like he's
0: you know, miserable, maybe, maybe even unhappy with recent work he's done, including the band tour and maybe even some of these like kind of flop albums he's been doing. And he's searching for something and he starts to sense this like thing that's happening, right? Which is like, Glam. You know, this like might explain why you gotta get Mick Ronson in there because he's like, there's something hard edge about this, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's gonna become punk in just like one, two more years. But, you know, Patty Smith, there's something new and like inspiring about this. And I want to ask you, Darren, did you feel like sort of a punk energy to the way he is performing on this set and specifically like transforming some of these older songs and screaming over the top of them almost? Yeah,
2: yeah, I definitely did. Um, and some of which I liked, some of which I wasn't like I didn't like t- as much, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But, um, yeah, I definitely kind of picked up on that. I mean, you guys are going pretty deep into like, the theory with you know Patty Smith and stuff. But, you know, I think even as a sort of an outside, just kind of listening, um, you can definitely tell there's like, there's like a, there's a energy there. There's like almost like an on edge sort of feeling like, like you, the way you sort of described, like Dylan seems like he's like unhappy or he's just trying to like, push the boundaries of what he's already done, you know, try searching like, like a lot of the, the entire show kind of sounds like, like a jam session. And they're just trying to figure out, or he's trying to figure out the next direction to, to go. And he'll take a song like, you know, a hard rains are going to fall and just completely transform it. um, Just to see, You know how far he can go with it you know what i mean right right it doesn't matter to him he's not trying to honor the song and you know one thing one moment and i I don't know how how, i didn't know how to put this but i made a note of it like uh and i think it's on the bootleg but uh you hear a fan like shout out like play some protest songs you know what i mean like (laughs) as if we're back in the 60s all over again um it was just so so weird and like i don't know I, i don't understand dylan's mindset at this point maybe dan you can kind of describe it like is he you know how how does he react to that because he's playing some of those songs yeah but yet you, you know. see,
1: you see it, it's like kind of strange because the the 66 tour is the one where he's like antagonizing the the right. audience uh you know they're yelling stuff constantly and he's you know, play it fucking loud and stuff, right? And right, right. And, and yelling back. And this one, because um, there's a few like times uh, when people yell stuff, and he like jokes along with it and stuff. It's it's uh, like somebody, uh, I think it's in the movie. Like somebody yells like "Dylan for president," and he's like "President or what?" Mm. And uh, you know, somebody yells like "Play just like a woman," and he's like "Just like a what?" You know, something. <laughs> you know, he's like he's like screwing around with people. You know, it's not angry. Like it's like he's having fun with it, which is a little strange you know i don't know why there's that change well
0: you know i want to i want to like to what darren was just saying you know it does feel like he's sort of like grappling with something he's like reaching toward something and the box set we should mention is basically set up to sketch that out because you get a couple discs of rehearsals Mm -hmm. and then you get like sort of a couple like an early show sort of a couple mid-period shows uh the Montreal show is, like, the the latest, um, an assortment of other things, and I think the idea of the box set is to sort of listen to these songs transform as he sort of, like, the Rolling Thunder review emerges. It's not, like, ready on the first night, Yeah, it's necessarily. not fully formed. Yeah, and it, it kind of, like, builds, and my theory is that what he's, like, grasping for is punk without realizing it. Like, would you put any merit on that, Dan?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the... Rolling Thunder Review is I I, I probably my second favorite uh, tour of Dylan's. I, I really like '66, but uh, like this is like a really like proto. You know, he's like taking all these songs and like turning them into proto punk songs, or at least the non acoustic ones or the ones with yeah, bios, you know, and, like all the 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 rock. Song. You know, he turns uh, Hattie Carroll into like a proto punk <laughs> song. And um, one of the. Uh, it's the it's the version that's on the sampler uh disc that's like on spotify i, I forget what show it is he like uh really changes hattie carroll and he um he does like the migos flow uh during a part of it <laughs> oh, he does like well, he says it in like triplets it's really rare, yeah, but uh, he does you know, he
0: plays with like the phrasing every night yeah exactly and, and sometimes he's very he's shouting like in a very like i don't know sex pistols kind of way um patty smith way might be more accurate but um I thought as just a side note, maybe this would make like a really interesting podcast episode one day, but like this idea of classic rock people like reacting to punk um, is so interesting to me. Cause you remember we did an episode on our old podcast about uh da- like a dad rock thing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Darren, you picked, what was it? What was it? ACDC's
2: something. Uh, let there be rock.
0: Right. Right. And they were <laughs> like, their whole thing was like, okay, these punks like think they're hard. You know, we can be way harder. Right. and, you know, I think about like, um I don't know, Rolling Stones, Some Girls is almost like it's like the New York Dolls kind of play on like pretending to be the Rolling Stones. So it's, this is like the Rolling Stones pretending to be the New York Dolls pretending to be, <laughs> be the Rolling Stones. And like there's some like untapped thing we could explore. And I think this would fit right into it of like these classic rock artists actually reacting to and sort of embracing punk as it's developing because they're musicians, they're artists. It must have been an exciting Time, But that gets me to the thing that you brought up, Darren, which is the inclusion of some of these older songs, which seems almost, um, you know, counter to this, like, progressive, like, pushing forward idea, right? And as part of my theory that I was working on, I kind of think that, you know, in some ways, like, punk is always kind of a return to something, you know? It's like the Ramones are returning to, like, 50s rock You know, Um, and in a way, there is nothing more punk than when Bob Dylan like went electric, you know, and or even like before that, when Bob Dylan is like playing really radical protest songs. And it almost feels like as he's sort of grappling, grasping toward something like punk, these kinds of songs make sense in that context. Do you kind of know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I mean. And it well, I, I think it's like the twist that he puts on these songs too, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to call it like punkifying it or whatever, but like, you know, again, I go back to like, hard rains are going to fall. Like after I heard that live, I had to go back to the studio version and like remind myself of <laughs> like the quiet acoustic, you know, poem that was, that, that was on that record because here, and it's actually my least favorite of these like transformations because I just feel like that's just a song that you can't really? Loud. Oh, yeah, God. Look, I, you I, lose, like, you I like, all this all version even more than the original. I no, uh,
0: so, no, yeah, no.
1: I swear to God. I, 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 yeah, I'm with you. That, uh, pretty much all the ones that he turns into, uh, like tonight I'll be staying here with you. The, the rolling yeah. thunder versions of that are, are way better. Hattie Carroll, the, uh, the, the, but you know
0: what I'm saying? Like, at, when those songs came out They were radical They no, were exactly. punk Yeah exactly You know like And and it's kind of interesting Because he's It's like he's getting interested In protest songs again Because he writes Hurricane You know famously mm-hmm. About oh, yeah. this uh, injustice Reuben Hurricane Carter This boxer um, Wrongfully imprisoned at the time And eventually released Um so he's, like, kind of getting interested in this, and there are a lot of songs like that in this set, including Hattie Carroll, like you mentioned, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, um, Blowing in the Wind, Dark as a Dungeon is, like, you know, I want to touch on this, but it's it's a 40s, like, folk song, but it's about, you know, like, coal miners and mm-hmm. the shitty situation they're in, you know, stuff like I Shall Be Released is kind of like mm-hmm. a protest song, um, you know, they're kind of, like, littered throughout this, um, and... It's kind of like when you are facing Turning Into a Nostalgia Act, it feels to me like he's trying to make these songs radical again, like they once were, you know?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair, you know. um, Certainly, coming out there and just playing, you know, in 1975, playing an acoustic version of A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall just would lose a lot of effect, because by 1975, it's not really you know, I mean, it is a protest song, but, you know, the 60s are over, like, that that time period is gone, like, so it would really be, like, going backwards if he was just to come out there and play that. So the only way to give that song more relevance, right, is to transform it, and to me, kind of bury um, the lyrics behind all the the sound, but, you know, that's my opinion.
1: (laughs) Well, I think, like, I mean, looking at his whole career, he essentially, like, after a certain after sixty six, he he never like plays the songs straight, you know again. Right, you know even seventy four. I mean seventy four. They're a little straight, but even you know he'll take a uh acoustic song and now it's sort of electric, you know with with band accompaniment. But uh you know up until today, you know when I I, I saw Dylan last year, uh and you know the song eighteen. I've <laughs> yeah I've seen him a bunch. Um, but God. you know it, like the songs are literally like unrecognizable um <laughs> I, I, one of my favorite things when i see him uh, you know nowadays is like when the crowd realizes what song it is <laughs> you know like because people you know a lot of times you know if, if you're at a show you know the first couple notes of a song you like come oh everybody's cheering but with him, it's like the first time you hear the chorus or when he says, you know, like uh, the name of the song in it, you're like, oh, yeah, fuck, this is hard rain or something, you know, like, and he's just, he's basically always done that, you know, in the 80s, it was shitty, but he was changing the songs, you know, Um, I, I maybe it's just a way to not be bored, because I, I feel like I would be. Yeah, but I mean, I think there's like real intention here, which is like,
0: you know, he, it's sort of. I think you like can this- have both.
1: You can have the intention and. You do it to like keep everything fresh, you know. Not only keep it fresh for yourself, but keep the the song fresh. I, I, because I, I, I think with him and you know, on on these shows, he changes the lyrics to uh, like um, "Knockin' on Heaven's Door" and "Civil Twist of Fate" a lot. Um, you know, I think it's just like he's his songs are never like finished. You know, it's like he's almost always right, working right. on the even even to today. You know.
0: Yeah, but I I think there's something about the sort of there's like a revolutionary spirit to the Rolling Thunder review as a whole. And that that's why these kinds of songs are like important to this set. Um, And, you know, I think about and I kind of wonder, actually, I'm sure that there's like a self-awareness here. But think about this land is your land. okay, Woody Guthrie song Mm -hmm. um, that closes, I think, literally every night on this leg of the tour. Yeah, Um, it does. So this land is your, is your land is the like perfect example of what happens to music. Okay. So that's like a genuinely radical folk song. Mm -hmm. It's about like income inequality and like, you know, fuck the rich. This land is our land. You know, I don't think he ever says fuck in the song, but he might as well. (laughs) Um, he's a radical dude. Woody Guthrie, um, as everybody knows, who's seen like the pictures, you know, this machine kills fascists on his guitar. Um, And yet, what has happened to the song, This Land is Your Land? Like, it's a nursery rhyme. It's sung, like, by children. You literally learn it in elementary school, yeah. Yep. It's lost all of its power, which is just something that happens. And, like, when The Who play My Generation in 2018, like, a genuinely radical proto-punk song itself has lost all of its, you know, power and meaning because... He's like, you know, whatever, 85, 100 years old. And he's singing like, hope I die before I get old. And so I feel like including these older songs and reinventing them on this tour in particular is really important because it's like he wants to make himself radical again. But he wants to radicalize these songs again that were genuinely radical. You kind of agree with me there?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, like I said, I think he's trying to not only keep them fresh for himself, but just fresh as songs, you know, so you don't start learning them in kindergarten. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Darren?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, I think it's a a bit of both, like Dan had mentioned, you know, certainly playing night after night, the same sort of set list. uh, You know, a lot of bands get away with it and I guess they're fine. But I mean, Dylan just doesn't seem he seems restless, like he just would never want to go out there and play the same songs the same way he recorded it night after night you know what i mean Mm -hmm. right um and at the same time it's not it's not just like all right we'll just add some drums and electric guitar and and it'll be fine like like you mentioned like it, it does seem like there's intention behind it there's creativity behind it like what does you know what is a song like Oh, I don't know, like, Blowing in the Wind, or, you know, I keep going back to the same Like, In Ain't Me, Babe, for instance. Like, what does that song mean in 1975 to, like, Bob Dylan? You right, know what I mean? Like, right. it's not the same song that it was before. So, I, I, you know, I'm truly fascinated by it. I think it's an amazing thing, and it, it's almost baffling that other artists, a lot of other artists, just never really tried to do that sort of thing. Like, it, 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 yeah. it, it almost creates, you know, it makes this whole tour like truly worth listening to like imagine if all these songs just sounded like they were originally recorded they're just live versions like would we even be talking about it right
1: now no exactly exactly i think that's what like the reason that like these box sets work and like i mean no other artist i mean i know i'm a huge dylan fan but no other artist uh besides kanye really uh do you like you know each tour and like you know i could hear a clip of something and and say uh you know I, I could get you pretty close to what tour that is uh especially things like rolling thunder and and 66 that are like radically radically different right, right. you know most artists don't aren't like that you know it, it's just you know what what's the difference uh in you know the rolling stones 69 tour and their 89 tour you know i'm sure they're playing you know start me up and and it sounds pretty much right, the same right. you know uh, over and over yeah,
2: Dylan was really thinking about his profitability. No, he's smarter. He was like... Hedging his bets. He's like, there's going to be this thing, thing called box sets in, in 2019. <laughs> i right, right, right. I would be yeah, able to get out. A- record everything. We're going to pre-release it. <laughs> They're going to be worth
1: 150 bucks a piece. Trust me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, that's like... You know, that's kind of my favorite thing about this set is that you get to follow the course of it because he, it's like, he's not really sure what he's after, but he, he kind of gets there slowly. And, you know, it just makes me so aware of this. Like, I think it's such an interesting topic that goes like even far beyond Bob Dylan, which is, you know, this idea that like artists have to kind of figure out a way to challenge themselves or something, or like keep, keep pushing on because it's so easy to get complacent. We talk about this a lot. And you can like hear it because you know, this, this tour is relatively like very short. Okay. And by the time of Montreal, um, I forget the exact date, December um, 4th. I'm looking at it. I didn't know it off that (laughs) man, but I mean, when, when hurricane comes out as a single, it's like November 75. Okay. So, um, basically when he starts playing hurricane on December 4th in Montreal, um, the audience applauds like you were mentioning dan um they know it already and it's like there's a certain antagonistic relationship that you almost have to have with your fans because they'll ruin your shit you know they'll turn it into a nostalgia act like that you know when you play the hit they applaud and they give you that adulation and it Mm -hmm. feels good and it's like becomes automatic we talked about this a little bit with the grateful dead where it's like these It becomes like sort of a craft where it's just like, you know how to get the applause, you know how to get the encore,
1: you know, and you got to fight with your fans your whole life. No, they talk about that in the movie a little bit. Uh, I think it's Roger McGuinn talks about Joni Mitchell. And when she joined the Rolling Thunder, she only played brand new songs. Right. And, uh, you know, he was saying that she, she felt bad she wasn't getting like, you know, a huge pop. At, you know during her set and stuff and he was saying it, you're not playing anything anybody's ever heard before but she like stuck with it and he said he like yeah. you know really respected her for it and i and i do too you know i think that's like a really you know you as a fan you know if i go to a show you know you part of you does want to hear those hits and the things you came for but also i kind of like going to a show and you know not getting that i i guess it sort of depends on who it is but Um, you know, if I'm a big fan of somebody, it's kind of cool to get something you you've not heard before, or in a way you've not heard it, or or something. You know, like to be challenged as as the audience member is is sometimes nice. I know. Yeah, go go under.
2: Well, I just I had like a sort of an outside question because it was just coming to mind as you guys were discussing. Like, was it whose decision was it to like record this tour and like film it? Right? Because I mean, um you know, it's not like everybody who goes on tour is constantly like getting these like incredible recordings.
1: Yeah, Dylan Dylan recorded it um because he was making this movie. Um do we want to get into it now or are you you want to hold on? Yeah, off? give
0: us like the the short version.
1: Yeah, he's making this movie. It's called Ronaldo and Clara. Um and it was going gotcha. to be this mix of concert footage and like a regular, you know, story movie, not like a behind the scenes thing. Uh but mm-hmm. it would be filmed on the off hours, you know, sort of behind the scenes, but everybody's playing a character. Um and so that's why it's recorded. Montreal and uh, uh and uh one of the Massachusetts or two of the Massachusetts shows were like audio recorded with like a mobile recording studio and stuff. And com- okay. and completely filmed, which all that footage has never been released.
0: Yeah, but this is like what the Netflix film is basically comprised of is yeah. stuff that was being filmed Or um, Ronaldo or Ronaldo and Clara. Oh, so um, it's not
2: actually showing like the concert performances? Oh it is. It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: They're they're filmed, but there's also stuff that's like And they're in Ronaldo and Clara too. Yeah, and there's also stuff like um you know, this is where shit gets like fucking wild with this <laughs> with this whole thing is like basically like there's a scene in um in the Netflix documentary where like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan are talking about their breakup. Okay. So like famous couple in the sixties. Another reason why the rolling thunder review was like, so publicized part, part of it is that it's like a reunion of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. Um, And they're like basically discussing their breakup and it's, it's like accurate (laughs) what they're saying, but they're actually playing Characters. Um, she's like dressed as what the lady in white, yeah, or something like and, that. And but Dylan is Ronaldo, yeah, yeah, and like so so. You know, I don't I, I don't even know how to get into this, but basically, there's a weird consciousness to this whole thing of like, you know, Dylan got to be Dylan. Okay, he's got to like fuck around with you because the documentary film and Ronaldo and Clara, they're basically like self consciously fictionalizing. What would otherwise be a normal documentary um and we should talk a little bit about maybe you can describe it dan the you know costumes and the face paint and the masks and even like the they sort of had like character names as you know as they're performing um can you just give a summary of that whole f- aspect of this?
1: Yeah, the uh, Netflix documentary, sort of, and it's because it's, you know, sort of fictionalized, the masks are a little blown out of proportion. The uh, That was on Halloween, um, and oh, they only wore those on Halloween. But um, the whole rest of the two were, like, Dylan paints his face white, and um, uh, there's a bunch of different, like, reasons he's given. Um, uh, the most famous one is, like, he saw it in some movie. Um he said that he wanted his face to be visible from far away. <laughs> I don't I don't know what paint a white house or that. But yeah, I mean just no real straight answer. He said it was Kiss that inspired him. Yeah, in the in the movie, yeah. Um <laughs> but yeah, and then everybody uh Scarlet Rivera like paints her face a bunch, um and New Earth does too and stuff. Uh you know, everybody sort of like does this kind of uh, you know. It's like a circus act, uh, you know. To yeah. go back to it, so and- so everybody's like in on it. It's not like just Dylan dressing funny or something.
0: Yeah, and they're like prototypical characters, almost. Like you know, Dylan has like flowers in his hat and stuff. He's like the troubadour or like the balladier or something of like this old, you know, this old idea of this. um You know, I forget the names of what everybody calls, but it's kind of like. Um, you know it's kind of like uh, a rivera what they call her like the lady of swords or something like that or but she's sort of like a gypsy i know that's an offensive word roma kind of you know spiritual woman thing like it's like they're all almost like little figurines and that's another aspect of this show which is like in this kind of getting going backwards looking backwards thing you know, like you were mentioning, they're going to small towns, they're trying to play unannounced, they're trying to be like a traveling circus or something, like in the old days when performers of various kinds would go from town to town, and you would have never heard of them before, and you would have this kind of like intimate new experience, right? And so like Dylan is kind of trying to, you know, recreate that, but in this like weird self-conscious way where it's like a a show, (laughs) um, does any of this like surprise you darren or did you have a sense of this kind of stuff
2: no i really didn't that's why i guess i you know had that question about why was this even recorded i had no idea that there was this intention behind it to create this film and all these actors you know i mean like uh, i don't know if that really comes across um so much in just listening to the performances you know to me it just sounds like um yes there was a decision to record these things and because of that He wanted to be more creative about how those performances were done so that it's just not, you know, your standard, whatever a standard Bob Dylan show would be anyway. But, like, you know, there there just seemed like, uh, I don't know, I I guess I didn't see as much visualization while I was listening to it. You know, like, I, I think about, like, Beyonce, for instance. And again, I didn't watch the Beyonce film, but you could kind of see it in your head yeah. a whole lot. To me, I just imagine a bunch of people, a bunch of guys... And like Joan Baez or whatever on stage, kinda of lined up with guitars, just rocking out, sometimes like <laughs> singing on the same mic. Kind of stuff like that, like a like a Bruce Springsteen well, type of concert yeah. or something, they, you
1: know? They do sort of do that just in like a strange, uh, you know, sort of distorted way. Because there is a it's funny you say like singing on the same mic, because there is like a lot of that going on during <laughs> during this game. There is, but there's also like, you know, Dylan does his thing and I you know
0: it's not like I've seen a lot of concert footage, but he seems particularly animated to me, and he does stuff like when, you know, a song mentions like wild geese, he like pretends to look up, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah, as if yeah. there's geese flying you know, like he's, he's like very, uh, you know, acting a little bit and yeah, especially kinda...
1: on, uh, ISIS. Cause he's not playing yes. guitar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and then there's even like stuff where, I mean, maybe they're just playing around, but like when they're playing knocking on heaven's door, like him and McGuinn are like making the weirdest faces at each other while they're <laughs> yeah. sharing the mic. There, there's something like extra cartoony animated about it. Mm. And the whole thing has like this self consciousness of like it's supposed to kind of be a circus uh, or something like that. And there's also like a weird. So, what I can't wrap my head around, and I want to ask both of you guys I mean, does he sound sincere on these recordings or like he's, or like it's a fucking circus? I, I,
1: I Judging if Dylan's sincere about something ever is, uh, you know, because it, it, that's the whole thing. You know, everybody says, you know, self-portrait sucks, but like, you know, he did it on purpose. You know, it's like that whole right, thing, yeah, you know, right. it's like you never, you never really know if, if he says, you know, was that word the entire 80s of his career sincere? Like people literally yeah. like <laughs> wonder that, you know, there's, I have books on, on was, was the 80s sincere you know so i I can't answer that
2: (laughs) what do you yeah i mean i get i am willing to buy into the circus idea i mean like knowing what i do know about dylan which isn't as much as dan you know i feel like this is like a almost like a lightning in a bottle type of moment like the next tour if there was a tour right after this i just can't imagine being the same thing you know what i mean i just i feel like
1: there's Th- that's a sense a s- of, like,
2: it's a little frantic. Like, I feel like we're kind of going off the rails just a little bit. Not, like, super yeah, crazy, yeah. but, like, you know, it, this just really seems like a, a snapshot of the moment, and it was not going to really happen again.
1: I think that's actually a good uh, point. You said, you know, if there was another tour right after this, and there is, and it's supposed to be the second leg of the Rolling Thunder review, and pretty quickly the wheels come off of it, and it just turns into not you know the magic is yeah.
0: completely lost well i want uh, to i want to dive deeper into this but I, before we move on i want just wanted to mention quickly that i'd finally decided after thinking about this all week that i think he is like very sincere here and that i find like the second set particularly um just incredibly moving honestly like you know we, we focused mostly on montreal um we'll talk about it specifically a little bit later on but like sarah is just like the way he plays it is kind of pure honest, pure heartbreaking. It, I mean, tangled up in blue. It's like there, there is so much feeling here. And and I also cannot, um, I, I just can't accept that he doesn't actually passionately care about the subject matter of like hurricane or well, even yeah, any of the other right. protest songs. Like yeah. there's something kind of self-conscious here where he's like playing around. But if you just look at, at it, it's like, he really means this shit. And Wait. I even think about stuff like, you know, So there's like this in the film, it's like this self-consciousness This like kind of it's fiction, but it's not really all the time. And like I mentioned with that, like Joan Baez scene he has, it's like, maybe I'm just being like conspiracy. I know like Bob Dylan fans are like prone to this, but it's like (laughs) after he does the So he does like sort of a rock and set. He then moves into like Joan Baez duets, which are a bit softer. Um, And then he starts up on a solo acoustic thing, and then the full band kind of comes back in uh, for the last quarter of it. And him and Joan Baez, they sing together beautifully, and it's like the second set always seems to start with a fucking breakup song. Like, if you look at it, and it's like... In the news, people are all talking about are, you know, are Dylan and Joan Baez back together? Like, you know, what happened to their bromance and stuff? And, like... (laughs) You know, I get conspiratorial, but I'm like, is he, does he, is he like actually addressing with this song, um, you know, the breakup with Joan Baez or that he's not over yet or like what, you know, or is he just sort of playing around? But anyway, I threw a lot out there, but you guys kind
2: of agree with me. There's a lot of sincerity here. Yeah, for sure. Going back to like Hurricane, for instance, I feel like he's like yelling the song. Like he he's like yeah. desperately he's like, mm-hmm. Listen, this guy is in jail. He shouldn't be in jail. Somebody do something about it. I think he even mentions I think on the uh the Spotify playlist or maybe it was the uh the bootleg one. He right before the song, he's like, Hey, if anybody's like into politics or like has some power, yeah. to, like get this guy out of here. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I, he's serious. He's he's totally serious about it.
1: Yeah, that's the bootleg series version. And um yeah he they show in the movie uh a like little trunicated clip of him like going to the record label and saying like he just wants to get this record you know on the streets as fast as possible you know they're trying to talk to him like oh you know we think uh it, it won't get a lot of play on this kind of radio or, or but it will you know over here and and his uh i think it's Louis Kemples with him uh says like He just wants to get it on the street, you know, like, people, once it's in people's hands, you know, they can play it if they want to, you know, like, he just wants this song to the people. So, yeah, I think, like, Hurricane is definitely sincere, and Sarah is one of the weirdest things to me, that, like, that song, just in general, it's, like, the only, like, definitely autobiographical, like, very obviously, like, he's using the real name of his real life uh, you know, like Sad-eyed Lady of the Lowlands is about her, but you know she's never mentioned. It, it, right. In fact, Sarah even mentions that Sad-eyed Lady is about her, and it's so yeah. it's like weird enough that that song exists, uh, but it's like extra weird that you like play that every night on a tour. You know, it just seems so like personal for a person uh, who's who's uh like notoriously impersonal. Uh, it it that, yeah. that's always confused me. I think that's um yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating,
0: and um. You know, I I did kind of want to ask, half facetiously, is this like Rolling Thunder Review? Dylan having like kind of a midlife crisis a little bit? You know, he's going he's going through a divorce, and it's like, I got to get out there. I got to recapture what music was like when I was young, like when I was hungry well, before he- I was famous. You know, like he hasn't had I, a divorce I, yet, but yeah. But I mean, he's already written one album about his marriages in shambles, so yeah. he can't be too happy. Um <laughs> You know,
1: you kind of, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a midlife crisis, but I feel like the 74 tour is more midlife crisis y. Uh, you know, at least this one, he's like, he's energized and like making something new. I think it's more yeah. midlife y to be, uh you know, just out there playing the hits. But I guess you could say like, oh, you know, maybe he's trying to hitch his wagon on, on this, you know, well, punk thing. Maybe but,
0: he's finding a way to make himself happy again. Maybe like that's true. the impetus, you know, and um, we listen to, uh, you recommended it to end this podcast by Rolling Stone magazine um I guess it was like a short podcast with interview with somebody and then with uh, Ron, Roger end. mcguinn yeah. and um you know they both said that he was like extremely happy on this tour, which um, you know would make sense so on that note, I kind of want to talk about like how successful this tour was. if you think about it as kind of like a reaction to what was going on before as kind of like an experiment because music has not reached nostalgia phase really yet um you know how successful he was and and you were getting to it dan like after all this sincerity after all this like punk fire uh it turns out the tour is not making very much money right and so we do like sort of a watered down stadium version in
1: 1976 and it's not supposed to be very great right yeah i mean some of the earlier shows are like not so bad um they're all in Florida, which is cool. And, um, but, you know, by the end, the, uh, the live album Hard Rain is from the 76. And I think it's, it's either the last show or the penultimate show of the tour. It's one of the last shows of the tour. And, you know, it's not awful, but it just sounds, especially nowadays, because nothing was released from the first tour until Bootleg Five, uh, officially. Um, so like for the longest time, really the only thing people knew, of the rolling thunder review was the 76 version uh, uh in hard rain um which is yeah. just really you know it's just the, the sparks gone he's seen like dylan seems like not into it anymore like he's just like, sort of going through the motions the uh makeup's gone the hat's gone he's wearing like a, yeah. a do rag at this point uh <laughs> and like <laughs> it's just it, it's just like it's not yeah he's playing yep. stadiums and it, it's just there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's none of that like punk energy anymore, and it's weird that like the the punk energy just completely gets lost too, because the next record's uh, Street Legal, um, which is like completely devoid of of
2: any of this sort of energy and and yeah whatnot. yeah. So why why like why do you think that happened? Do you think it just the tour went on too long and you just well of,
1: you know it, I think it. I so
2: know. on one hand, it's like financial right because. Well, a I lot of that was our, he
1: spent so much money making that dumbass yeah, movie. movie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you think about it's I hard to think about it in these terms. Like, basically, the whole time the Rolling Thunder review is going on in 75, it's developing this insane mythology. Like, everybody's talking about it. Because not only is it his first tour, you know, in a long time, almost 10 years, um, it's like shrouded in secrecy. It's going like small town to small town, you know, and like in an unannounced kind of way. <clears throat> there's something radical about it. People are writing about like he's more inspired than he's been in years, you know, and it's really developing this mythology. I'm sure people are reading about it. They kind of show this in the documentary a little bit, but people are reading about it and Rolling Stone and stuff. And they're like, well, I wish I could go see this. But, you know, so so on one hand, it's like you run into problems because. Despite Bob Dylan's greatest efforts, he is extremely fucking famous. And these little unannounced shows, it sounds like from the documentary, have lines like around the block. Mm-hmm. People wait like days to get in. Um, it's probably privileging, like, you know, wealthy people who can afford to scalp tickets and whatever, you know. Um,
2: but it still didn't make any money? Well, no, he's, because he's, he's playing like
0: thousand seaters, Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, so basically what what I was getting to is like, so then you've got this mythology and then it's like that classic thing where now all of America gets a chance to see it. Like, you know, when something like Broadway show happens and it's like, oh my God, Hamilton, Hamilton. And then not the entire original cast goes on tour, you know, and you can see it at like your local civic center or whatever. And like, that's what i felt like 76
1: rolling that's a good analogy it's 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 still it's 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 the same story just uh with with less good uh you know actors and everything
2: yeah (laughs) so it could only last for so long is kind of what you're saying and like i mean you can't yeah it's just unsustainable right you can't bottle up that energy and just keep on going (laughs) exactly
0: yeah i mean i think we should we should try to dive into that because like punk as a movement only lasts like two years um Is this the same problem? What do you think, Darren?
2: I mean, it seems like it. You know, I kind of mentioned it before. Like, I listening to this, I just couldn't imagine the next tour carrying this type of energy. You know, this this type of uh, sincerity. You know what I mean? Um, Because it's hard. I think it's hard to replicate this. Even even though you know the original idea is like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to do this tour night after night. I don't want to play the songs the way I know them. Let's change it up doing that still requires you to, like, go, you know, city to city over and over again. How can you, if the way you guys are describing this sort of circus feel, this looseness, whatever, like, number one, it's not sustainable, like, financially, if you're playing all these small places. So then Mm -hmm. you expand it to these much larger, you know, arena kind of things. And now you've sort of lost the original intent, right? Like, you know, the circus is not, the circus typically is not filling 100,000 seats or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what it's usually ever meant for. It's under, like, one tent, and if you can get in, great. Exactly. And so, how, you know, to me, it just, it, it like punk, it hits the first time, it's kind of like lightning in the bottle, it makes its statement, and then it moves on, or it, you know, fades away. How can it, how can it stay? You know, it's, it's like the Nirvana effect, you know what I mean? Like, right, right. I, if I Kurt stayed any- on, we what would we be seeing now, you know, all that stuff.
1: I- Exactly. Anything with like a ton of energy, it's just like it's 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 like energy is so hard to sustain. You know, like punk, like you said, only lasts like two years. It's like when when you're you know when your sort of thing is like being shocking. You know, things stop being shocking once you're exposed yeah. to it. You know,
2: and everybody figures it out. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, yeah. and 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 that's like what happens. I think here and you know just punk in general and and any anything like that i know and like basically like i was saying earlier like nostalgia will
0: win it will eventually mm-hmm. win like you know the fans because this will becomes destroy- the nostalgia you know we're, we're- yeah <laughs> it does yeah. Yeah. the fans will will like sort of ruin your music you know it's kind of like uh you know what like people will be um like at a pink floyd concert you know like really begging um Uh, roger waters to like spit on them or something like that like wouldn't that be cool just like you know the shows i've read about where he spits on the audience and tells them to go fuck themselves like i wish he would do that to me you know like no exactly it it becomes like parody self-parody exactly Exactly. so that's the thing i was i felt like i was trying to get at is like (laughs) dylan prescient as ever i swear to god i'm not like i you know i just sound like a crazy fanboy but I, i really believe in this that like he even saw that ahead of time And I feel like that's what he's doing with the, like, face paint and the playing around stuff is, like, he's almost, like, acknowledging the impossibility of really doing this, you know? It's, like, I want to get genuinely inspired and tap into, like, something real and escape nostalgia, and yet I know that at the end of the day, I am famous, and I would just be playing pretend. Like, I would just be kind of playing a game where i go to thousand seat uh you know concert halls unannounced and i can never really do it like i feel like because like the whole film has these fictional elements and he's lying about stuff and there are actors playing like non-existent people in the history of this and it's like am i going too far to say that there's a certain awareness of the impossibility of this task
1: he's set out for himself no i think you have to be aware you know especially when you're like I talked about it a little bit earlier, like when you're this, uh, you know, big of an artist and like somebody who has like changed popular culture, you know, over and over again, you know, you, you have to have some sort of awareness and, uh, you know, knowledge to, to do that thing. You know, like you, maybe you get yeah. lucky and you stumble into, you know, a hit or something that's like really original, you know, once, maybe twice, but the amount of times like Dylan has, you know, stumbled onto it is, it, there's gotta be some sort of awareness and, and purpose. I just, I really think that
0: he is, you know, I sound crazy. I want to know Darren, do I sound crazy? But I think he's (laughs) just like one of the actual smartest people that like ever (laughs) lived. And it's just like, he's sitting there in 1974 and he's like, before punk even exists, he's like, I know how to reinvigorate myself. I'll go punk. And then before he's even done it, he's like, but I know that it's impossible and punk will die, and so I will you
2: imagine him just like saying all of this. Yeah, so? and then
0: he's like, and after that, I'm going to turn Christian,
1: and you know, like, like
2: I seriously think he's
1: no, like you know, thinking about
2: this shit. He's his playing
1: career.
0: it's no. like 40 chess. This dude is playing.
1: I, I, uh, I um, Pitchfork released like that article uh, last week. It was like the eight best Dylan documentaries or something, mm-hmm. and one of them was like this BBC thing uh, from this horrible movie he was in called Hearts of Fire in the 80s, and I had never mm-hmm. seen it, so I watched it. And uh, like the the last like a little bit of it is is like an interview with him, and he's I think it's eighty four in, in the uh, in the documentary, and he's like talking about like the way music is today, and he, he's basically talking about like the hits of the eighties, and he says in about five years time something's going to come along and erase it. And it's like literally, <laughs> I, it's when Bleach comes out, you know, like Nirvana. Bleach is is the amount of time he says, in that, and it's like because I I thought it, I was I was Amazing. watching, I was like, fuck, that's Ble- Bleach comes out the year the year he just mentioned, and he's completely right, you know, it does, it, like it completely erases the. I mean, it's more never mind, but regardless, yeah. same band at least. Um, I, I mean, I think
0: he he he's like more in touch with these trends than most people. Are we crazy, Darren?
2: No, I mean, I don't think so. I mean. You know, Bob Dylan, I mean, besides the Rolling Stones, is, like, one of the only, like, major, you know, pillars to actually come out of the 60s. You know, the Beatles aren't there. Like, doors are gone. Like, a lot of bands end in the 60s. And here we have Dylan make it through the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s. I mean, the guy's learned a lot. You know what I mean? And I think he's very observant. I think he is incredibly intelligent. You know, I think he's very much... You know he's got his finger kind of on the pulse. I think he has a really good idea. He's very aware, in other words, yeah, um, of what he's doing. You know what I mean? And like he's kind of always been like, I don't really care. You know what everyone thinks. You know what I mean? Uh, Just as much as he was an antagonist in the the '60s live shows. I mean, I think him turning Christian and all these other things that he decided to do is like you know he doesn't care. I mean, if he wanted to, if he wanted to monetize his career, although I think he has. I mean, for God's sakes, he has so many you know records
0: yeah you know he's getting
2: checks all the time anyway you know but he could have he could have definitely gone with the trends he could have done a lot of different things right through the 80s and 90s dan but no exactly he just just didn't you know i
1: mean even like you know whether it's on purpose or an accident or whatever uh you know releasing self-portrait or even or even if you want to go back like releasing nashville skyline uh, which is like this, he, you know. He sings completely different. It's just a straight country record. Um, yeah. You know, just a couple years after Blonde on Blonde, even following up Blonde on Blonde with a with an acoustic album. You know, he's like famously goes electric, uh, like and does this antagonistic tour, uh, and then uh, releases a acoustic album. You know, or <laughs> right, you know, right. mostly acoustic. Like, you know, he he seems to do what what he wants to do. You know, a lot yeah. of uh, I I, mean, I don't think he, as much as the christian period is awful you know i feel like you know if the rolling if mick Jagger like converted to christianity i feel like he would have maybe kept it to himself or you know maybe he'd be outspoken about it but like i don't think there'd be a christian uh mick jagger record or rolling stones record you know you know what i mean like to to put it in people's face and you know and maybe it's just solely to be antagonistic
0: yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, what we're getting at is, like, he's kind of uncompromising, but he's also really aware of, like, what's going on, and for he sure. he likes to react against it, and, you know, we should mention that, without getting too off topic, you know, there's stuff like Empire Burlesque sounds like the fucking 80s, he's mm-hmm. not, like, really no, yeah. trailblazing in that sense, but he does seem to, like, maybe not 100% of the time, but he's just really got this knack for reacting, I think, and... So back to Rolling Thunder, what can other artists learn from Rolling Thunder? You know, I think about, you know, again, sort of facetiously, but when you hear this word, you should like run far away, but like, this is a back to basics record or, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like back to their roots album, you know, like it's going to be shit, but I would describe (laughs) Rolling Thunder as in a way, kind of that. There's some new sonic elements, for sure, but he's kind of, like, even consciously bringing up these old f- protest songs to sort of, like, reinvigorate them, like I was saying. Um, it is kind of a back-to-basics
1: thing, so how does he do it right where so many fail? I mean, I think you just... Uh, part of it comes with being, uh, you know, in my opinion, like, the the greatest artist uh, of, of a generation, you know? Uh, if everybody could do it, they would do it you know um but i don't know you know because you're right like normally that whole back to basics thing is it means usually what that means is i'm uh just gonna rip myself off and try to like you know make yeah you know the wall part two or or whatever kind of or thing. like i sold out for a while and it's
0: not it's, it's not, not, not paying it as off, much money yeah, as it exactly. was, So I'm gonna try to get my old fans back or something. It's,
1: no, exactly. And so, like, it's weird because like Rolling Thunder like does feel like you know, like people always say like, oh, you know, the old Dylan's back and stuff. Um, but it's like it's it's it is the old Dylan, but but it's still like it's it's new. It's not a, it's not like just a rehash. Maybe it's like just it's just the spirit of the. Old yeah, yeah, Dylan. that's the. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good way to put it. I think because yeah, it's not. We're not just getting. I mean, even even Desire as a record, you know, Desire's not uh bringing it back home part two or or Highway sixty two or something. You know, it, it's it's like a whole separate thing, but still like sort yeah. of the, the the spirit of of him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What do you think, Darren? Well, you know, I think. There's a creative approach to it. You know, I think you you lean into the old stuff just enough to not make it like a, uh, you know, a nostalgia act entirely. And you also don't lean too far into the new stuff. Because, I mean, surely he has way more... Who he has? He has more than enough material post sixties right. that he could have used, oh, yeah. and completely left the pro- protest songs behind. But he chose to include some of them, not all of them. There wasn't an entire show of just those things. Right. You know, we get a lot of desire, like the majority of desires on these mm-hmm. the yeah, live sets, yeah. right? But mixed in, you're kind of reminded, you're like brought back to like, okay, this is why we love Bob Dylan, right? You hear the ch- the uh, cheering on songs that are very familiar to the audience, right? Um, it flows really well. I mean, I you have to I have no choice but to admit that like Bob Dylan sat down and looked at his set list and said, This is how I want this to go because there's a there's a very clear flow to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He, he works it out meticulously. Mm-hmm. And there is I, I
0: honestly did want to compliment the flow of these sets because it's like it's kinda like a bunch of heaters right away. And mm-hmm. then it cools down for the Joan Baez thing, but the, mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's almost like acoustic, but then it's like the instruments slowly come back in and then we go to the solo acoustic and then the band sort of comes back in, but it, it like kind of stays sort of mellow. Um, I noticed that you can hear Scarlett Rivera's um, violin a lot more prominently in like these last couple songs because Mick Ronson isn't like, you know wiling out over <laughs> over everything anymore uh it, it mellows out with like one more cup of coffee and sarah and even just like a woman um you know it it's it flows like wonderfully i think and so it's a it's like a fantastic show we're not like in this would actually be an interesting podcast topic like moments when artists were completely antagonistic with their fans you know like a uh, metal machine music or some shit like that you know it's like this isn't
1: that right dan No, no, Rolling Thunder doesn't even really, like, seem antagonistic, because, you know, it's sort of hard to think, like, you know, we've always heard this when, like, I I never heard a Rolling Thunder concert before I knew Desire, but at this point, none of these people have ever heard Desire, because it's not out yet, they've maybe heard Hurricane on some of the, you know, later shows, I think there's only a couple shows post-Hurricane, uh, single, um... You know, so but so it's like hard to think. Like, you know, you sort of think of it as him playing all these songs that everybody, you know, that at least like everybody's sort of familiar with. Even you know some hits, but you know B sides or whatever. But really, a good portion of the show is com- would be completely new to everybody in in that building. You know, and that's sort yeah. of a it, it, that's sort of an antagonistic uh, idea. But but he doesn't like seem that way, and the reaction everybody seems to be like really digging. Uh, those songs you know
0: yeah yeah I mean yeah so maybe it's something like that that's like the takeaway you gotta be challenging but not, um, right. not antagonistic and you can't just challenge like yourself all the time you gotta challenge your audience mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. your audience likes to be challenged I was thinking about this when we were talking about uh, Tool a couple <laughs> episodes ago funnily enough I, where I was like what drew all of us to Tool as you know young high schoolers and You know, maybe we're just the kind of music listeners that that we like to be challenged. And at that time in our life, it was very challenging music, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that's one big lesson that bands could learn from the Rolling Thunder thing. Um, You know, I want to spend a little bit sort of touching not too long because Darren didn't see it, but touching on the documentary, which, like we mentioned, is full of all this fake, you know, tongue in cheek type stuff, um, but also ends Weirdly, in a way that I want to ask you about, Dan, by listing, like, basically never-ending tour dates uh, for the rest of his career after this. You know, after this long gap from 66 to 75, he, like, tours like crazy for the rest of his life, basically. Um, Why? What was the documentary trying to say? Why did it? What is that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about that, too. Um, I guess to... Show that like maybe I mean like I, like maybe there's saying that that's like what reinvigorated rein, uh, like yeah. his spark of wanting to get on the road or something because cause, yeah I mean between seventy five and eighty eight he only takes a couple years off in, in like randomly and then from I think it's June eighty eight uh, is when the ever ending tour starts which is right. going on to this day you know like um. Whoa. He's like not taken more than a few months off since 1988. Like, uh... oh my god, you were you you guys are born in 89, right? Right. right. Yeah. When I was born in 88. Uh, yeah. So like, literally, our whole, your whole life, your entire life, <laughs> he's been on this one tour. You know, I mean, it's it's nuts that I've I've seen a tour at age 30 that started when I was uh you know months yeah. old. <laughs> you know, it's it's nuts.
0: So. What I so basically, Darren, to just, just describe it, it's like the film ends. It it does like these sort of clips sometimes of like old silent films, like doing magic tricks and stuff. So it's obviously kind of like playing with, hey, we're fucking with you a little bit in this. But then it ends by just showing every year and all of the tour dates listed, uh, and it just cycles through like every year up to the present, basically. And it's like, so I thought on one hand, is it trying to say this experiment? was a massive success because it like broke the floodgates open you know dylan found his inspiration found his muse again uh can't stop working or was it trying to say because we know that not all those years were good years as we've been talking about is it trying to say like after this one hurrah touring became his like a job for him and he just accepted it yeah as such you know like Based without having seen it, but just based
2: on our discussion, Darren, do you have kind of an opinion on that? I mean, it kind of sounds like that. You know, it almost sounds like yeah, this you know, <laughs> documentaries for this tour, but don't expect to see a documentary about any subsequent tour. <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels that way. It's just nothing. Nothing is as, as unique or as interesting as this very first one. And he's not above like kind of
0: almost shitting on himself because all of that tongue-in-cheek stuff. There's a lot of like
1: toying with himself, right, Dan? Oh yeah, I mean, he even says in the in the movie they ask him, you know, talk about, and he he starts trying to explain the review, and he goes, "Ah, that's clumsy bullshit," <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and then essentially says that it didn't mean anything; it was a, a tour about yeah. nothing. Don't um, read too much into it. You like know, we have been tonight. Yeah, exactly. He, he'd probably be so, <laughs> He's gonna be so pissed when he listens to this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, some mixed messages there mixed messages in the whole documentary uh which is constantly like being really sincere you know yeah. like you get like Allen ginsburg being like we're out to discover america you know like we're out to you know re <laughs> you know rediscover ourselves and i love like you know the tour starts in plymouth which obviously if like we're thinking of this as like this tour is supposed to be a revolution like what better place to start than plymouth you know and and yet you can't help but feeling that like uh you know ginsburg is like this prankster who's kind of fucking with you too and then at one point they they, this can't be true that they they basically cut his set because it's too boring and he has to do like taking out the trash and like carrying people's luggage
1: alan ginsburg yeah i really i don't know if that's true i've never read it has to be a troll
0: yeah has to be
1: i've never read it and i feel like you know wouldn't you have showed some footage of him doing that or something so I, I, I do kind of think that that's... But
0: you never know, because it's like, could be Ronaldo
1: and Clara's stuff. I don't, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. But, but let's talk about like the fake stuff and all, because I, I saw the movie um, in theaters uh, the day before it was on Netflix. Um, had, you know, obviously hadn't read anything about it. So I just right. went in. I was expecting, you know, Scorsese made No Direction Home like 10 or so years ago. Um, and it's just a straight regular documentary. So I was really just expecting that. Um, so I watched it, you know, in a theater. Um, people are laughing, cheering. You know, everyone seems to be taking it completely at face value. I, I did. Right. I did. And then um, I remember driving home, um, I told my wife, I said, I thought it was really weird. I've never heard about the Sharon Stone thing. Like in all the <laughs> books I've read, like, because she's famous. Yeah, and I- so I
0: so mentioned it. So Sharon Stone um, says that as like an 18-year-old, she meets Dylan on the tour and sort of befriends him a little bit. Um, and that's all bullshit.
1: Yeah, and, like, <laughs> there's like, the, the filmmaker, you know, I, I thought, like, I, I I thought like, I thought Dylan just made the film, but, you know, yeah. his name was, like, weird, and I'd be like, ah, you know, it's uh, you know, just a name I forgot. Um, the, the promoter, like, yeah, I don't know who the promoter, you know, that's not a name I'm gonna know. That politician, right. you know, I did know that, like, Jimmy Carter was a big Dylan fan, so right, right. it seemed completely plausible to me. I literally did not think any of it was fake until uh you know I got home and like read some reviews the next day basically. Um yeah. and then I I so watching the movie just thinking it was completely in earnest I made me feel one way. And then I rewatched the movie um at home after knowing that. Mm. And it really does like sort of um like I'm I'm really glad I saw it before I knew that because it really like <laughs> makes you it's like oh man i got tricked you know it, it sort of like wasn't as enjoyable but i don't know yeah. it's like a really crazy um you know it,
0: it, it's weird because i yeah i i basically couldn't avoid spoilers i actually didn't know i needed to avoid spoilers for yeah. The documentary, <laughs> yeah exactly but i kept seeing headlines about stuff being fake and then i was like very suspicious of everything like to the point where i thought things were fake that weren't you know um I was like the whole movie just like, there's no way that that's real. There's no way that's real. Um, You know, and like look like staring at every picture to see if it's been photoshopped or whatever, Um, (laughs) you know, so it made for a certainly weird first uh, viewing experience for me. And I kind of felt like I didn't love the movie so much. Um, It really fails to provide you with any. And I know this is maybe like antithetical to its goals of kind of like toying with you a little bit, but there's like no historical context really provided at all. I had to like read all of this stuff. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of weird. It's sort of, it's like, there's not really a narrative. It's like kind of trying to set up like, Oh, Dylan's pretty lonely or something because like all of these, um, you know, he's got all these like hangers on, like all these groupies follow him everywhere he goes and stuff. And he was trying to like sort of get like a community of friends back together or something. And yet that doesn't seem to be, true at all because then people are talking about oh like we never even talked to bob dylan but then the whole time you're like (laughs) are they telling the truth or not um does any of this like make you interested in watching i will say though that like the performances and there are many of just the whole song yeah
1: i'm glad they did perform
0: they're just like incredible um like must see but does any of this make you more or less interested to watch it darren
2: i don't know i think it kind of makes me like feel a little less interested in it i mean i i watched no direction home it's been a long time but I recall really enjoying it. Um, and I would have imagined that this film would have been similar, but it sounds like, and I I just don't understand like, why, why is there all this fake stuff in it? I think it's almost like trying, it's almost like take
1: two on Ronaldo and Clara. Did you feel mm -hmm. that way, Dan? Yeah, I, I completely do. And you know, everyone sort of like when it was coming, like when it first got announced, like, uh, you know, on a lot of the like Dylan, um, forums and stuff i'll go on like you know people kind of were thinking like oh you know are we gonna like sort of get the real ronaldo and clara finally um right because like dylan tried to edit it himself it's it's like four hours long um <laughs> it, it's so oh God. It, it, it's sort of it's actually like i i've seen it a few times and i i watched it uh like a month ago um one to get ready for the documentary and because i knew we were gonna eventually do this episode and i split it into four days i watched one i I, I, like purposely at one hour Should make it a netflix miniseries no no really because i i i I told myself every night just one hour don't don't get into it and watch (laughs) two i watched one hour and it was it was like a thousand times more enjoyable than any other time i've seen (laughs) it because you don't get so there's live performances in that film, and that's like really the shining star of it, obviously. But and but some of the fake stuff and the acting and stuff is like kind of interesting and cool or funny. But like, I don't really want to see four hours of kind of anything. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. you just by the end of it, you know, you're so like sick of sick of it, especially because like I mean, I- nobody's a good actor too
0: um yeah yeah but i felt a little bit the same way about the netflix documentary which is like yeah the best part are the performances because like we've been talking about like that's where the sincerity is like that's where the real shit is like him pushing himself him chasing something him like feeling real feelings um you know in these songs like sarah and, and so forth and all of the surrounding stuff the costumes the makeup like the people the talking heads in the documentary um are bullshit you know like mm-hmm. in- intentionally but those performances are just magnetic
1: yeah and, and like you said about the like it doesn't give like really any historical context and stuff like i like obviously i went into it i knew the context I, you know i right. was a big fan and my wife she she likes dylan you know, because she has to, to be married to me. Um, I mean, I'm joking. I mean, she likes him, but she doesn't, you know, she's not going to read a book on him or, or, you know, doesn't care that much. Uh, And I also, my in-laws went went with us and and they're, you know, they like him and, but again, they're not really going to read a book on him. And, uh, right. you know, my wife, like on the way home kept, she was like, what what was he doing when he went to talk to the guy about hurricane, like in the, you know, right, uh, the rec- right. like, no idea. Yeah. Like she didn't. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they kind of didn't play the whole thing. You know, he's had to re-record it. All was, you know, like I had to like, at the end, I sort of had to, uh, explain <laughs> the story that they, it, it was like when they make a movie about a book, um, but they don't have enough time. They have to cut stuff out, but it's right, like, oh, right. well, I've read the book, you know, I can fill you in. It sort of like, felt like that a little bit you know um which i think was a shame because it's such a actually like if they just told the story straight and gave you the context everything yeah it's a fascinating story. story i think like you wouldn't like now i think to enjoy the movie you have to be like a pretty big fan of dylan whereas like a movie just like that was a documentary on the tour i think like you would just have to be a fan of music um to enjoy it um so it, it it is a little disappointing, I think.
0: Well, that's uh, that's what you missed there. And I would recommend though watching those YouTube clips I sent you of just a couple songs fully yeah. performed because they're great. Um, I think we sh- we're running out of time. We should move into some closing thoughts. Um, you know, like I kind of mentioned, we we sort of stayed like I hoped we would, focused on like the the tour as a whole. Uh, we all dabbled around through the box set and um, different, you know, the bootleg series from uh, 2002, I think, and. Um, and yeah, we we tried to sort of pay special attention to Montreal December 4th, uh, which is, you know, widely considered one of the best maybe shows that Dylan ever played, but probably the best show on this tour. Were there any just kind of like thoughts that we didn't get to? One thing that struck me is I kept feeling like Tangled Up in Blue would be an absolute heater if they like rockified it like they do in the some songs on the set. Um, and yet we get the acoustic version and it's absolutely... kind of heartbreaking the way he plays it and I just am always amazed at how Dylan does this you know like his songs in whatever permutation are kind of that's why like they're so coverable and there are like so many hit versions of all of his songs and they enter like totally different contexts and styles you know like R&B groups and you know even like pop groups today and stuff it's like how they work no matter how they're played i just can't get over that
1: yeah i think it's a testament to his like lyric writing and everything it's uh you know like the the lyrics and and the words of the song like really are what carries it because yeah like you said like you can have the birds doing a folk rock version of it you can have uh, you know an r&b ver- you know and it, it still works uh no matter what it's it's a huge testament deserves that uh noble prize <laughs> yeah yeah anything <laughs>
0: else uh stray thoughts jump out of you guys
1: i i want to say like i and we've we've talked about this through our whole lives uh like i love desire i i I think that record is better than most people think it is um, but the, the, the versions of the desire songs, like during rolling thunder are like next level. Like if, if, if that whole record like sort of sounded like they sound on rolling thunder, I think it would oh be, God. it would be ISIS. Oh uh, yeah. We didn't I, shout Isis out ISIS. ISIS is my favorite. Uh, rolling ISIS thunder. is fucking
0: wild. Like, cause when it's they so go good. into the, it's just like, you know, a harmonica break on the record, but, uh, like harmonica and, uh, and violin, but like everybody goes nuts mm-hmm. in like a, actually like the violin gets discordant and Mick Ronson is like just shredding and like, you know, almost like a, you know, bordering on Sonic youth territory a little (laughs) bit on those like big swells. And, the thing is unhinged, and I love looking at his
1: face while he's performing. Oh yeah, he also looks the, the movie, all the, the, the like so many close ups, like on his eyes. He's like so so nuts looking. I know, it's, I it's know. crazy. But what? But with the desire stuff in the um, liner notes for the bootleg series, uh, Ratso, the the journalist that's in, in the movie yeah. and stuff, he like writes. He says that like, uh, he, he was on this whole tour, and that like. Listening to Desire, it, it sounds like a, uh, it's like watching a movie on a well rented like VHS tape, and then hearing <laughs> hearing the Rolling Thunder versions is is HD, you know, 1080p uh, DVD
2: yeah. or whatever. And, and that did like, you
1: kind of feel that way, Darren?
2: Yeah, I thought the you know I'm I'm not I like Desire, I really do. I like it a lot. Um, I felt like the songs were definitely elevated here. Like I I was yeah. kind of like I kind of like fell in love with them again listening to them in this sort of format um you know especially like even like hurricane which i've heard you know so many times just felt like completely new just the 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 tempo was like so much faster you know what i mean like they were just going like as blistering fast as you could like play that song you know and yeah um you know i i like uh you know what you guys said about isis like totally makes sense you know, even one more cup of coffee, which really wasn't really one of my favorites, but um stands out even on this on this record. Um, yeah, all of the songs, honestly. Um I know we've talked about a lot of them. Like, I thought "Blowing in the Wind" with Joan Baez was like, you know, like hit, just hearing that song like for the first time, almost. You know what I mean? Like hearing it in a totally yeah. different format and I just language, really cool. totally yeah, different yeah, language, yeah. literally in French. Yeah that, really, yeah, that was <laughs> really that was yeah, really super cool,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i at the same time you know i i do think those songs are elevated, but at the same time i I really like how a lot of these older songs are like desireified where um you know you've got this like desire has this weird like um i don't know like the folk like Roma folk music mixed with like Mexican mariachi folk music mixed with American folk and country music or something like I like hearing that kind of vibe, like especially on It Ain't Me Babe. It's got this almost like you expect like mariachi horns to come in at any moment. <laughs> There's like something cool and gypsy spooky about the the whole thing and I like how the set feels quite cohesive even though it's coming from all kinds of different different eras. I mean stuff like, you know, Hard Rain's going to Fall, I feel like if it just never existed and it appeared on Desire in this form, I would believe that that was the original mm-hmm. version.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, same with like Hattie Carroll, you know, like it, it yeah. is there's something to be said, like, with him using... Like, he, he's basically, like, made a album of of his, you know, material up up until this point, like, f- to be played live only, you know? Because the setlist yeah. basically yeah. don't change much uh, show to show, but, like... So, it, it, he's, like, changed everything so much, it's, it's like, making a whole new album uh, live. Yeah. That's you know, crazy. Well, we are uh, going over time here.
0: Um... I think just to wrap it up, um, I, I just feel like this is kind of must listen stuff. And I feel like it's inspiring as a musician to listen to it. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, you know, since Darren, you were kind of a newbie to this era, like me, did you feel
2: similarly inspired? Most definitely. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about the live album and the approach and you know, I feel like this was totally unexpected. You know, I didn't really know what to expect uh, to listen to a live you know, Dylan record. I mean, I haven't really kept up with all the bootlegs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So this was totally, this, this was pretty new to me. And, um, you know, just like I mentioned, like hearing these songs I've heard hundreds of times uh, just played in a different way just felt like, you know, so inspiring, you know, you just I long for so many other of my favorite bands and artists to like have done the same sort of thing. Yeah. Uh it's like transforming like right right before your eyes or before your ears or whatever. Like it's it's just really cool, you know, and, and no one just no one does that. I mean yeah I, I mentioned Nirvana before. Like listen to those like live Nirvana albums. They're just rehashings of the same thing Mm -hmm. i mean they're they're fine they're cool it's all they have left basically of nirvana to release that's why we're hearing them but i mean it's just it's just a band playing their songs live it's not you know a transformation like what i feel like we're hearing uh with dylan
1: no i think that's i think that's completely a a great point yeah like like things like those nirvana live albums and and most bands live albums they're they're sort of a, a for the fans kind of thing whereas like dylan's at least maybe sixty six and and seventy five. Those are like sort of must hear kind of thing. You know, there's there's not too many live or too many bands that like a live album or or you know bootlegs of live albums are are must hear sort of gems.
2: Yeah, like just as important as any like studio album. No, exactly. I would, yeah, I would argue exactly.
1: All right. Well, as much as I would like to continue talking about Dylan, <laughs> uh, I guess that's enough for today. So uh, what do you think? We'd love to read your thoughts on the air. You can email us, popshieldpod at gmail.com. We'll have our next episode in two weeks. And speaking of Nirvana, uh, that's probably what we're going to talk. Um, so if you like the show, help us out by subscribing and leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Stay connected. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that's at Pop Pod, And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. See you. So long.